Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got John Lechevre online. John, how are you? I'm very well today. Thanks, Mike, for asking. How are you doing? I am great. Really looking forward to this conversation, especially talking about leadership. And uh, it's definitely something people need a lot of these days. But before we dive into that, uh, why don't you share a little bit about you, uh, a little bit about your backstory, and then we'll dive into the conversation. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm your normal uh, Catholic choir boy, altar boy when I was a kid. I've repented myself of being Catholic, but um, I uh, I wound up being a lawyer and I haven't, re- I, and then I repented myself of that too. So <laughs> I've left a lot of things behind in my life. Uh, I, was, my, I was raised by a single mom. My dad died when I was just a little guy, but my mom was a very kind of forward looking uh, woman and uh, she introduced us to, to the arts and philosophy and theology and things like that that have all become, you know, very important aspects of how I view our place in the universe now and so I'm very grateful for the things that she brought. I did study law at university in Calgary and practiced law for about 10 or 12 years and uh, and then uh, that led to uh, I became introduced to a a fellow who became my partner and he uh, noted that um, there might be a big future in online gambling and if somebody brought some professionalism responsibility reliability security to the online money transfer side of that uh, that that might be a good little business model. Um, the uh, bookies uh, in those days, it was all about sports betting, uh, but they were having a hard hard time with uh, uh, fraudulent use of credit cards and, you know, getting denied and that sort of thing. So we brought them some security and then, uh, you know, in a short time, that was about 2000. And then within about three years, uh, uh, we went public on the London Stock Exchange and achieved a market cap of about $2 billion, which was, you know, um, as some things go, not huge, but as far as I'm concerned, it was huge. <laughs> and uh, and then three or four years after that, Uncle Sam put up his hand and said, you know, you guys are doing something. What what the heck are you doing up there in Canada? And uh, they wound up arresting uh, me and my partner, Steve, and uh, the and, and charged the, and the company as well with the criminal offense. Uh, well, they charged, they, they threatened three criminal offenses, uh, conspiracy, money laundering, and... Uh, uh, racketeering, I, and we wound up pleading guilty to lesser offenses. I wound up pleading guilty to, uh, you know, uh, what was it, uh, promoting illegal gambling, and uh, which is a five-year maximum offense. But the other ones I mentioned are all twenty-year maximum offenses. Um, I wound up serving forty-five days in in Manhattan, uh, in the same prison that uh, Epstein died in, uh, and. Uh, then uh, forfeited about forty million dollars to uh, to Uncle Sam, and uh, the uh, between me, me and my partner and our company, we forfeited two hundred and fifty million dollars to the uh, to the U.S. federal government. At the time, I was I calculated that uh, in the time they were in Iraq, and they were talking about spending two and a half billion dollars a week in Iraq, and I reckoned that our forfeiture would get them, to, you know, to coffee time Monday morning. <laughs> But that, that's about it. And I'll, I'll take any questions now. Yeah. So you know, I think about it as we are today, where it's next to impossible to watch you know, 
normal you know broadcast television and not see online gambling commercials uh sports betting you've got you know you know the football pools you know fantasy football you know that used to be you know quiet kind of thing and now you know even during the middle of the game it's like oh you know this they're talking about fantasies points and okay this player's playing so this will help their fantasy leagues so we've gone from a that was so illegal shame on you all that stuff to where we are today where it's advertised uh and it makes me wonder and again this is you know just like when we look at cannabis and you know in canada it's been legal for for some time in the u.s it looks like it's slowly getting a federal approval on some things and they're uh, going back and basically wiping um, the convictions out for things like that it, it makes me wonder you know if at that time you know that that they'll do the same thing for you. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's that's something I because again, if I if it's legal now, then it's like okay, you know why why should people be hampered with you know a, a conviction on their record if it's it's not illegal now? And so again, that that's just my person. That's my personal opinion on that. And you know, others may agree, others may disagree, but we've seen precedents in other cases. So my personal hope is that it'd be expunged. And, and even bigger, it'd be like they scratch you a check back plus interest, but we know that ain't happening. But uh, but ultimately, well, who knows? You know, crazier things have happened. So you 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 go from that experience and then you go, okay, now. Now what? You know what? What was that now? What moment for you? You know, once uh, you served, you know, the time in in New York and got that done and behind you. Um, you know, what was next after you know, basically losing your business? Like, okay, now what? Well, you know, what were some of the thoughts that you had come to mind as you were uh, rebuilding? Well, my my rebuilding was one that uh, was uh, it was a sort of rebuilding that just about anybody I know would be envious to have to do. I wound up with several million dollars, and I'm you know I'm very comfortable now, and I'm not you know I'm, I'm I, I don't I, I'm shy even to say that because I know there's single moms out there listening who you know can't can't make rent this month, and I, but um, I'm I'm fine. I always have been, but. Um, before before I ran, you know, got in touch with uh, the uh, with, with the man in, in America, um, I had already come, embarked on quite a road of philanthropy. I, um, uh, my my lawyer was able to tell his honor on sentencing day that uh, to date I had contributed uh, well over fifty million dollars to charities and other uh, in, in, and other gifts to people, and that continued for a little while. But I wound up. Uh, having my, I, I sort of got kneecapped in the philanthropy department. My, uh, the, the day I was arrested, my, uh, my, my net worth that morning was probably around, you know, half, uh, half a billion dollars or so. I had 27% of a $2 billion company. Uh, and then, um, I, I, I wound up, uh, you know, let me say merely wealthy, <laughs> but I still was able to continue on being generous with people who deserved it. And uh, I was also up to that time, I was, I was quite foolish, actually, Michael, and I was, I was generous with some others who maybe didn't deserve it so much. And I wish I had some of that money to give back uh, and give again. But um, I embarked on that. I did quite a bit of work with uh, David Suzuki. He's a well-known environmentalist in most of the world, not so much in America, but uh, I still serve uh, with David Suzuki, the David Suzuki Institute. I'm a business and finance advisor to the uh, David Suzuki Institute, and I'm on the business and finance committee of the David Suzuki Foundation. So I've done quite a bit of that. 
Uh, we did my one, one of my other associates, Jim Hogan, is a preeminent uh, PR guy here in Canada, Western Canada, and he uh, he's, we started a thing together in around 2004 called Desmog Blog. It was uh, the slug line of the blog was clearing up the PR pollution that clouds climate science. The uh, the fellows that we person the people that we met in the science racket were very grateful for us because what, what we brought to the table as far as they were concerned was that they had been spending all of their time arguing with uh, climate science deniers and we uh, advised them, convinced them that um, there is no benefit, there's no dividend from arguing with climate science deniers. They don't do science, they don't care about science, they've never read any science. All they care about is raising doubt about climate science. And if, if, and if, if they merely raised doubt, then they've achieved their purpose and their purpose is to slow down regulatory uh, you know, intervention into the things that are causing the problem. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, the scientists credit us for getting half of their day back so that they can actually go back to work and do science. What we taught, what we encourage them to do is we say here, the, we boils down to this. The only thing you ever talk to a climate science denier about is where they got their money. Uh, and, and they'll always tell you, well, that's a, a, a private matter and I'm not, you know, <laughs> right. But we did some of that kind of work and we found out how much money Exxon was giving to, you know, people who are professional deniers and that sort of thing. And that's all available on dsmog.com is still a very uh, a prominent uh, climate blog in the United States. It's changed its name in other countries, but uh, so that's some work we did. I continued on with, uh, um, you know, uh, charity as much as I could without uh, without having to go back to work <laughs> myself. And um, uh, I've done music, uh, poetry, written books. Um, I'm uh, I'm very keen to help young people now uh, regain their confidence in constitutional democracy. Uh, it's been smeared by uh, people the world over, but primarily, uh, pre pre preeminently in the United States, uh, there's been the things that have been happening in your democracy uh, have been very uh, dismaying, I'm sure, to young people, and lots of them have turned their back and said, I don't do politics. The selfish wealthy in the world want us to turn our backs on politics. They always show up for elections because they know what's at stake. What's at stake is the two most powerful tools that have ever been invented by our species to control the selfish wealthy. And those are the powers to tax and the powers to regulate. And, you know, when you have an election, the same 35% of convert conservatives always show up. What they want everybody else to do is go mountain biking so that they can control government and can make sure that the powers to tax and the powers to regulate are not used as they should be properly used against them uh, to the benefit of us all. Uh, wealthy, we, we wealthy have a, a responsibility and that is to make sure that all of our brothers and sisters on the planet have some basics. I'm not, I'm not going to say equality, but I think we, we should have, everybody should have equal basics. Uh, um, you know, I think of, uh, uh, you know, integrity of the person, security of the person, of course, uh, reasonable access to food, clothing and shelter, reasonable access to the tools of self-improvement, education, uh, health care, uh, basic finance and to justice. And finally, um, you know, uh, access to uh, a, a reasonably healthy environment. 
And I think that if the, if the wealthy in this world paid their fair 2%, um, uh, you know, we, we would, there would, there would, there would be no more, we would have no more enemies in the world because they'd all be well provided for. And they'd understand that our form of democracy actually does work for them, not just for the wealthy. So I'd like kids to understand that they can grab the levers of power and they can do it on no, you know, they can do it next month in America. It only takes a very narrow margin to get rid of the filibuster, to get rid of, uh, you know, to get rid of uh, gerrymandering and to get the, there's an unequal weight on the scales of the electorate in the United States. The, what do they call them now? The, minor, the minoritarians, the minor, the minority want to govern America their way. And it's the way the selfish wealthy wish to be wish to be uh, um, governed. I'm very careful to say the selfish wealthy because most wealthy people aren't that selfish. Most of us are very generous, but there are some who are so wildly selfish that um, they could cure all the world's problems, but they do not. I think that's the the lost opportunity you know, for those that have that spirit and have been beyond successful. Everyone's definition of success is different. But ultimately, being able to contribute to making sure that people have their basic needs covered, like you said. And I've always been of the opinion, there's so many resources available. If we make it where people can get access to it and not have to choose between something that's going to sustain them in living, whether it's food, clothing, or shelter, or you know, have to choose between those things or medication or going to the dentist or any of those things. You have those things covered and you create an environment where people that want to further improve themselves, launch a business, become an entrepreneur, become, and again, their definition is successful. We as a society benefit from that. Yes, we, we benefit for inventors and people have done great things. You know, I'm not going to mention any names, but there are you know, inventors and entrepreneurs and you know, multi-billionaires that have created things that have been beneficial to society. So I'm not knocking those things at all, but creating at least the opportunity for people to be able to do so if they want to, removing those barriers is not this you know gigantic ask of people you know to pay you know uh, uh, pay more in in some taxation than a lot of them have been and you know that's the thing with you know the loopholes and especially the you know the tax code you've got situations where they allow people not to pay any taxes at all on things but then go after somebody that doesn't even live in their country pointing fingers or anything like that, but, and, and do what they did. I, it's, there's just this imbalance there. And it's like, no, that's not how it should be approached. And uh, I think that hoarding of money is sort of the wet dream of wealth. It doesn't, you know, the, the, the real making love of wealth is the real benefit of it is generosity. The greatest dividend of wealth is the, gra the gratitude that we receive for helping other people, you know, and, and the irony of it, one of the big ironies of it is that if we, if we dealt with everybody on the planet the same way we're talking about here, given the basics, that's the spirit that made America great in the beginning. If we turn individuals free to look after themselves, they're going to do the best thing for themselves and for everybody else. Of course, 
for individuals that makes sense. They, they thought that at the beginning, Americans didn't understand corporations yet, but corporations are kind of soulless uh, legal persons. They are legal persons, but they, they don't, they, they don't, they don't care that much about moral laws. They indeed, they're forbidden from following moral laws. They're, 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 they're constrained by law to follow only the laws that are for, that they're forced to follow. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't include the don't fool around on your life, wife kind of laws. <laughs> right? But all, you know, like Adam Smith said, he, he, he assumed that there were enough good men among us. He would call, he quaintly, he called people men. But he assumed that there were enough good men among us that governments wouldn't have to help the, the disadvantaged because good men will. And the spirit that if you help people, they'll look after themselves. That is the fundamental idea of what American freedom is. All the rest of these um, contortions and, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, mangling of freedom that goes on in America now by particularly people who are selfish. Um, it's not the spirit that America was was grown on, you know. In in at the beginning, you know, people in America thought, well, you know, um, if we if we give people their freedom, they're going to work hard, and uh, you know, they'll do well for themselves. That's a very generous con conceit, a de de generous idea of the human spirit, and I agree with it. But what it's come to in America now is, you know, if we give that guy six hundred dollars for COVID relief, he's gonna, we're going to turn him into a bum. <laughs> and that's not a very elevated view of human nature. And I think that's what we've fallen into. And I think that we can, you know, if we can help young people, um, you know, grasp this more giving, caring, developmental thing. The irony, it is, I, I, I'll get back to this. The irony of that is, is that they will be grooming good customers for their businesses. Right now, there are people who can't afford Nike shoes. Right. Right now, there are people who can't afford to buy the, 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 you know, the content on Netflix. Right. But if everybody was well educated and looking after themselves and well, you know, and well looked after that, that's just going to, you know, I've talked to some pretty conservative guys and they agree, Mike, that wealth in, in the whole is, is basically infinite. It depends on our creativity and the more the, the, the more we create that is of value to people, the more people will uh, will acquire it and carry forward to so that they can make some of those things themselves, you see. So it's um yeah, it's it's uh, the hoarding money, it feels it feels like it's it, fe it feels like it's the good thing to do with money, but it doesn't satisfy you for very long. And you hoard some more and then that doesn't satisfy. What's really satisfying is to have a whole world full of people saying, thanks so much. You, you didn't owe me anything, but you, you, you've changed my life. And when people come, I run into people all the time that I've forgotten about years ago who say, you know, you saved my life. Well, what did I do? Well, you, you know, my, my daughter was in trouble in Ecuador and you gave us $5,000 to medevac or, oh, did I? <laughs> <laughs> they're going to go to their graves thinking ab about that. And I take a lot of comfort from that, you know, on the nights when I'm not sleeping very easily, it's very easy for me to recall people who feel that much gratitude towards me. And that's, that's a, it's a, um, I'm, I was going to say it's, it's not a, it, it's not a, a dividend that you can buy, but it is, you can buy it. All you have to do is be generous and watch what comes back. It's a, it's, a, it's a very, very rewarding thing to do. Yes, gratitude and generosity makes you richer. 
I've seen it time and time again, those that have been generous with their gifts, their wealth, uh, their skill set and all of that, they get it back, they get more, you know, people, you know, I know this, you know, for a fact, you know, corporations that are, you know, obviously soulless, but there are organizations out there that are doing great work and they are very generous. And what happens is people go, you know what, I want to support a business like that. So they buy the products and services, which grows the business. And then that business turns around and they give more. And all of a sudden it just, it's that ecosystem that continues to do it. Now those, I wish there was a lot more, um, but like you said earlier, you know, many of them are what I like to call malicious compliance. The, what is the absolute minimum I have to do in order to be legal? Okay, that's what I'm going to do. And and they don't they don't venture from that at all. And they you know they find themselves and you know the younger generation that we've been talking about, they're they're looking a lot harder. And of course, you know the younger generation are dramatically increasing in numbers, and they're going to. You know, take a look at okay, what are you doing to make sure that you minimize the environmental impact of what your business does? You know, whatever it is. You know, we know in Canada, you know, the prime minister, you know, in in government, you know, implemented the the ban on single use plastics, and we see that. You know, and you know, we you know, many of us complain about the paper straws, but I have a workaround for that. You know, it's called buy yourself a, a reusable straw. And then that way you don't have to worry about the paper straw. Plus it reduces uh, the creation of paper, which means it's reducing the number of trees that are getting cut down, which means it reduces you know, the, the chance that we're going to have less oxygen to play with because we kind of need oxygen from what I've heard. Uh, it's kind of important. So all these little initiatives, but again, what it does is, in, in my opinion, in my assessment is it allows individuals to take ownership. And I want people to have that opportunity to do so. And you mentioned a moment ago too, where you set up these things and people say, yeah, you can take this and you can grow and do things in life. And sometimes people don't. And, and that's frustrating, but you know, it's their choice. It's their life. You know, some people are more comfortable at certain levels of life than at others. And it's those that are bold that want to take a risk that are generous and giving, even though, you know, I can't give this or I shouldn't be able to give this money away because it's a little tight this month, but they do anyway. And guess time and time again, you know, I think about this like, okay, cash flow is a little low this month. I'm going to continue contributing the way that I contribute. And guess what? Every single time, I don't have to worry about it because. The revenue comes in, a sale comes in, you know, a speaking engagement comes in, someone buys some of my books, you name it. it I don't, and it's to the point now where it, it's like, okay, I wonder where it's going to come from. I, I expect it. Yeah, I expect it to happen. And that is a huge mind shift for people that are afraid of being able to do things. And now they don't have to fear that because they're, they're comfortable and things are taken care of. And that should be the feeling that everybody has, and it's possible, and we can do it without yeah. taxation and you know having the government overstimulate economies and things like that. There's enough of us that can contribute, just a, a percentage. You know that real quick, and I obviously give you time to respond. You know that five thousand dollars he spent to allow that um, daughter from Ecuador to get medivaced to care. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you obviously you shared with us, you know, your, your revenue and income and things like that. 
you know, that five thousand dollars to you, you forgot about it. You don't. You, you're not dwelling on. Oh, I. You know, there's five thousand dollars. What could I have done with that? You. You don't even think about that. You think about. I saved a life. That is one of the most powerful feelings in the world. You know, I saved a life, and you know the other. You know, all the generosity and things you've done over your life. The ripple effect of that is magnificent and and everyone can feel that it's just a wonderful feeling knowing okay i helped somebody whether it's donating to the zoo you helped animals live you know or be fed or donating to a food bank you know not just when there's economic downtimes people need that all the time so it's just for me you know I'm, i'm on the same boat with you it's like be as generous as you possibly can and believe me it comes back to you larger than anything you could do by just sticking your money in an investment account or a bank account or something like that. Use it for a greater good. Not to be a stick in the mud. I just want to turn to one thing that you said. You said governments, you know, I governments don't need to tax. I said, but you know what, Michael? Taxing is a duty and an honor. It's an honor to pay taxes. But if we set up things the way I think we could, and we should, I think we should, you know, people up to about, you know, $100,000 a year of income probably wouldn't have to pay any taxes at all. And that's 90% of people. You know, the wealthy people in our Western culture have way, way more than enough money to provide everybody with, you know, free post-secondary uh, education, uh, you know, free child care, elder care, health care, all of, you know, education at the, uh, you know, primary and secondary levels, all of those things are, and they, it's, it, they don't cost that much money, but that, and it's, but I think that the, 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 why I think this tax idea is I don't like to hear people dissing taxes because, it, it, the taxes are what rich people owe. They, they, you know, it's like I was thinking this morning. You know, you go to the, you, you go to a third world country and you, you say, well, we're going to develop their whatever copper. We're going to develop their diamonds, right? Well, it is development if you develop it for them. Now, I'm not saying don't take any profit. You've done a lot of work. You've made a big investment. You should get some money back. You shouldn't get it all. It, they're, it's their diamonds. And what we do, though, rather than that, is we go over there and we find a couple of, you know, selfish people there who are in power. And we say, well, we'll just, you know, if you if you don't tax us, we'll make you rich. And they go, oh, that's good. Well, then, then you've got Robert Mugabe with billions of dollars and a whole bunch of people starving all around him. No, the, the, the wealthy people need to pay their fair share. And when they do, they're going to make themselves more rich because they're going to have more well-heeled customers. It's really that simple. Yeah, and and you said more more customers and better infrastructure, better everything. When society completely benefits, please. Yeah, better happy employees, and and you know with the great resignation and quiet quitting and all the things that are going on in North America, people won't have to be in that boat. They won't have to go. I need to leave this environment because of the myriad of reasons why people are you know, contemplating leaving where they work, whether it's burnout, work that I do, or stress, or 
financial challenges or just the environment isn't healthy. And there's reasons why it's not healthy because those people are dealing with challenges and stressors and financial problems and life, you know, and all the things that it presents. So it just has this, you know, real, it seems like a hamster wheel that so many of us can't get off of, but, you know, having, you know, those that can, you know, contribute to, you know, the ways of making this world better, it would make this world better. When I realized what it was you were up to, Mike, it inspired me. I read a story this week that indicated that I think it was in New York Times. They said that uh, they're, they're, they're thinking now that, that um, burnout might have as much to do with isolation as it's got to do with overwork. And I, w- I wanted to know your reaction to that. It said it makes sense to me because when I when I react with people, you know, uh, it's invigorating to me. Right. But when I but when I'm isolated, then, you know, what, what, what was your reaction to that news? It, it didn't surprise me. And it was a really good article because uh, it was a big concern of mine, especially during you know, the first year and a half or so of the pandemic, where so many of us were isolated from people. We, I, I would see people sitting in a parking lot, talking across the car, sharing a cup of coffee. At least they were doing that. But so many people didn't. They they other than zoom calls or things like that they never saw people they never really went outside very much and we as creatures are designed to interact in person face to face and you know the stress of everything you know the work learning how to work remotely because so many people didn't know how to do that before and all of a sudden congratulations you're working remotely or oh wait a minute you've got kids wait a minute they're homeschooled wait a minute, your kids are in school the same time you normally work and you've got one computer in your house. Hmm, How's that going to work? And so all of these dynamics in the early days were really stressful. And then once you navigated around that, just the the sheer length of it and the depending on where you were in the world, the ups and downs of, you know, lockdowns to certain degrees and and then waiting for a vaccine and, and, and everything that came from that and all the challenges that people were facing. Again, we're meant to interact. That's why when people ask me a question, it's like, well, as far as work, are you a fan of remote work full-time or hybrid or in-person? And I'm opinion of, I want all three options because there are people that do really, really well in person. There are people that do really well having a little bit more flexibility and hybrid and certain roles make sense to have those be remote, especially if you were a global organization that is basically 24 hours around the clock, depending on where your locations are. So everyone says we need to have an all or it's like, no, have all and, 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 and I, I hope that that's how things will play out. Yeah, you know, when in workforce, and I look at it in a lot of ways of it's kind of a shuffling of deck chairs right now. I think a lot of people are just kind of moving around trying to figure out, you know, what the right fit is for them at this particular point in time in a work situation. And I'm hoping that organizations will will find out what works best for them and and talk with uh, your employees. But please talk with your customers too. Don't don't exclude them because. They're the ones that are helping you grow and you find out what works best for them and, you know, just have an ongoing conversation, understanding that things could change. And I tell HR teams all the time, when you're writing new policies around this 
remote or work in a pandemic type of thing, use pencil, please, because you're going to change it a bit and just be flexible with that. And, and a lot of people do not have fun with that because policies, procedures, black and white. And it's like, we're, we're humans. We're messy. We, we, we need some flexibility on some things. So yeah, it was it was definitely a, a great article, and it's going to be interesting to see how things play out over the next couple of years. Yeah, I'm very enthusiastic about the um, way people are getting engaged. Uh, young people are really powerfully getting engaged in politics in the United States, and I'm very excited to see what happens in the next month and uh, yeah. in the next two years to see. Uh, you know, we're we're just about this close to the uh, the the. the um, unequal rule of the wealthy being completely obliterated in the United States. You yeah. know, it's, it's just that close. And, you know, yeah. the, 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 we are the, you know, not we, the people who live normal lives, not us wealthy guys, are, you know, at least 90% of the population. And in a democracy, the 90% should be running the show. That's not socialism. That's democracy. Yep, and then they can determine which way they want things to go. So be fair, be fair, but let let people be incented, but be fair to everybody. That's that's the bottom line. Yeah. Absolutely, John. I've loved this conversation. Where can people find out more about you and all this amazing work you're doing? Well, if you spell my name right, people can go to johnlefave.com. Uh, my two books are on there. All the music I've ever recorded is on there. I'm a bit of a poet too, but my poetry always happens to go along with melodies. So said, I've recorded. I was fortunate um, to uh, be in the studio in Los Angeles over those years when I was out on bail for being, <laughs> that's what I did. I moved to Malibu and then went to, you know, West LA and recorded albums. And I did, recorded two double CDs with... Uh, Brian Ahern was my producer, uh, and he was uh, he was married to Emmy Lou Harris, and had they have a child, and so he's well known. He's, he's done Johnny Cash records and stuff. So I was very fortunate to to run with some big shots for a while. Um, the uh, uh, and you know I, I on Facebook there's a thing called Thoughtful Species, a page I have, and it's just a you know I keep people up to date on what I'm reading about. You know what would what would we be thinking about if we actually were a thoughtful species? We think we are, but <laughs> we've we've still got some work to do. Always room for improvement, as a former boss told me, even though he gave me great ratings and reviews and all of that. So I'll definitely have that information in the show notes. So John, thank you again for being you. I really love this conversation, and and thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for letting me be here. It's been nice to meet you, Mike, and uh, best wishes in all you do. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.